0: Hello and welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is your host, Josh Summers, and I'm always very happy to have you here with me today. In this episode, I bring you a conversation that I had with a friend and colleague of mine, Laurie Glenn. Laurie is a yoga teacher, a dharma teacher and actually of quite interest, a former firefighter. And in this episode, we get into talking about her career transitions and how she's navigated those from a body worker to a firefighter to a yoga dharma teacher. And specifically, we look at a theme that that Laurie's been teaching from for several months now, and that's the theme of self-compassion. Admittedly, this is, as I say in the podcast here, this is not my forte. Self-compassion does not come easily, and I know for many it doesn't come easily either. But um, in speaking through this theme with Laurie, I think um, you'll get a sense of how one can start to approach integrating self-compassion and why it's so important. Uh, But connected to this conversation, I just want to announce that Laurie, as we say in in the conversation here, Laurie is a guest teacher in the Sangha that Terry and I host um, this is an online practice community, and on August 2nd, that's the first Monday of August, Laurie will be giving or, or hosting the guest teaching slot that night. So she will be guiding the, the, the community through a practice on self-compassion. So if you're at all interested in, interested in checking out the Sangha or checking out Laurie's work, please consider sh- joining us for that evening. On August 2nd, you can Join is either a drop-in, which is a $10 drop-in, or you can uh, join as a member and have ac- access to all our talks and, and yoga classes throughout the week. So there's links for that in the show notes. You can look under um, joining the Sangha or the drop-in uh, option, and that will give you a way to find how to attend this uh, live session with Laurie. But uh, it was really a pleasure to um, have her on the show. And... Uh, just as a general update, I'll say that going forward, it really is my intention to have sort of a, a variety of new guests, people that I'll be sort of bringing in to have conversations with about their field of expertise. But I'm also uh, more and more drawn to wanting to have ongoing conversations with a smaller group of kind of practice colleagues and friends of mine. And the idea behind these these. These ongoing conversations, whether it's with Laurie or Linda Modero or Howard Axelrod or Robert Wright or Bernie Clark, the idea is that in these ongoing conversations, uh, we'll be able to move into a depth of conversational terrain that we might not be able to get to if we're just having once off uh, interviews. So, um, this is something I'm interested to see how it develops, but I just want to give you the heads up that that's sort of a, a direction that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to move the show into. So thanks so much for listening today. And um, if you'd like to, again, to join the Sangha or dr- join as a drop-in for the, the, the session that Laurie will be leading on August 2nd, please look into the show notes for that and you'll see how you can attend or um, participate. And without further ado, I now bring you Laurie Glenn talking on self-compassion in practice. <laughs> okay today i am with laurie glenn on the podcast laurie thanks so much for coming on today
1: thanks for having me josh
0: it's a pleasure to have you um i've wanted to have you on for a while now and as a way to maybe introduce you you are you came to I, i got to know you first as a student in the yin yoga training that terry and i run and in this was a couple of years ago um, when I first met you, and then we started having conversations, I think during trainings and then over the phone about practice, because it, it became clear that you, you were a yoga teacher. And I think at the time you were completing a Dharma meditation teacher training. And, and it was really the, around the Dharma that we, we, our, our conversations kicked up and, and became quite interesting around the themes and approaches to practice um, and then, as Terry and I formed our online sangha about a year ago, uh, you were uh, call you a an active member in the sangha, coming to the Monday night sessions and participating uh, a lot. And um, as the sangha expanded, um, I wanted to expand the voices being shared in the sangha and 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 showcase and give platform to. People that I think have a a, a kind of a a, a unique and and valuable voice to bring to the teaching. Um, And so I invited you to come and join us as a guest teacher. So you're one of the the esteemed guest teachers for the Riverbird Sangha. And and so I'm really happy to have you here today and to let members and people that may be interested in the Sangha to hear you, to get to know you a bit more and then to explore kind of some of the the key features of how you think about uh, practicing and teaching the dharma so that's all to say thanks again for being here Um, one of the things i've gotten to know about you which i think is maybe a good interesting place to start is that uh, as i often find with folks there's an usually an interesting path that someone goes through to become a yoga particularly a yoga dharma teacher and it sounds like your path um, at at some point had you working as a firefighter and i've I've not met too many (laughs) folks that have transitioned from firefighting to to yoga dharma teaching and um maybe to begin uh just to open that up how did you a become a firefighter and then how did you from a firefighter transform into a yoga dharma teacher
1: yes um yeah haven't heard of a lot of people that have done that myself so um i appreciate the question and as always i just want to say i appreciate the opportunity to be in conversation with you around these topics in general. Um, so it's great to be here. So, so yeah, my path I feel like is a is a little bit circuitous. How I ended up as a Dharma teacher, yoga teacher, and I actually originally, when I when I really thought back over the time that it's been since I, I would say I started my spiritual path, which has been twenty plus years. Um, and I tried to kind of map it out. I actually started as I started with yoga. I started with uh, Bikram yoga. (laughs) I was just flipping through like a women's health magazine. And in the back of the magazine, I saw a little tiny, like, you know, 16th of a page ad for Bikram yoga. And at the time I was living in Tahoe where I'm based out of um, and was an aspiring professional, hoping to be professional snowboarder. And I was looking for a way to train that wasn't just out on the mountain or that wasn't in a gym. And so I mm. found this, this Bikram yoga ad and I was interested in, in it. And I in a
0: women's it. magazine.
1: <laughs> a, I think it was women's health. I think was the name of the magazine. Yep.
0: Yeah. No, no. The, the, the twisted irony of that. Is it doesn't, that doesn't escape me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that's very true. Um, so I looked into to what that was and I actually ended up going to the library and checking out a book, a Bikram yoga book and just taught myself. So there was no studios where I live. I live in a, relatively rural area which has grown grown now over the years but um so self-taught at home bikram yoga and about three months into it um at first it had just been a very physical practice for me and about three months into it I remember being on my mat in my bedroom I just had a tiny little space for my mat and Had what now I understand to be a spiritual experience. At that time, I didn't really understand the energetics of it or what it all meant, but that there was something in me that just shifted and moved, and and literally at that time brought me to tears. And it was it was something that I didn't understand and hadn't experienced before, Um, but I knew in that moment that wow, there's something here in this movement practice and this breathing practice that's that's beyond just the physical body. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was back in like 1995. So that's essentially where I started. And, and over the next years, few years, I, um, practiced Bikram. And then I took a short little 50 hour course in Iyengar yoga and a hundred hour course with, um, integrative yoga therapy. And so that was kind of my launch into yoga. And at that time, the yoga Alliance didn't even exist there so there wasn't the 200 hour teacher training programs and so I started to teach right away um and there weren't any studios again in my small town so I was teaching at, at like rec centers and HOA centers homeowner association centers um so this, so this was taught,
0: about this was about 20 years ago
1: this was in I started teaching in 99 and yeah Oh, so, yeah. No, it, so it, what's interesting
0: to hear so far to hear your, your story is it, 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 it bears so many of the features of, I think, my own story in some way, where, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I didn't go to a class to start. It was it was through a book. I, I started with a, a book on Iyengar yoga. But just mm-hmm. like you in a little bedroom, I remember doing the practices out of the book and, and, and starting to have what, what I would call a kind of spiritual encounter. Um, -hmm. it was very private at the time. So it's, it's really interesting to hear your side of that. And, and also to, to recognize that it was before the kind of the institution of yoga alliance and and how I would say the, the professionalism of the path became kind of a codified thing. There was much, it was, it's still the wild west, but it was very much the wild west in the nineties and before and, um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to hear that, that parallel in, in your, in your journey so far, I assume you weren't heating your bedroom to, to hundred plus degrees <laughs> or anything.
1: No, no, I missed out on the extra heated Bikram practice, which is fine with me. I'm not, I'm not a hot yoga person. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was, it was a little wild, wild west back then. I mean, I didn't know anybody that was doing yoga. Um, there were just, there was no culture here. There wasn't the, you know, huge industry that it is now so so it was a little you know figure it out on my own explore on my own and that also brought me to i enrolled in our local community college into a world religion course and um of course that's where you know i really got turned on to eastern philosophy and eastern religion and and was introduced to buddhism and um and found who has now become my primary teacher jack cornfield's work um Lama Surya Das, and and that was my introduction into the Dharma back then. Um, so so yoga and and Buddha Dharma kind of came together ish, and they just really fascinated me. They just really resonated. Something in me lit up, and and just it really resonated with me. And so I dove into that.
0: Um, Actually, be, can I, I would, put a little pause on that because I, the the phrase you used. Um, yoga and buddha dharma became how did you say it became a practice or use the word ish and i forget what the, the, the 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 word or the, the the is it mm. the suffix the ish part oh. did you find that did you find that those two came were, were were working together for you or did you feel any conflict between the two
1: mm, that's an interesting question um
0: because and, really... and i'm only asking out of my own experience in that i also like i said like like you started with yoga and then um got o- opened up to the buddhism kind of academically at first but i was very mm-hmm. drawn to it and it, there seemed to be this a little bit of a divergence between the two directions that the paths held and I, I i don't know if that was alive or at play in your own encounter with the two the two paths
1: i think at that time and I'm trying to kind of recall the energy of that time and where I was. I think at that time, because I I kind of went right into Iyengar, um, there seemed to be a little more structure, linear formality around the yogic side of things at that time for me. Mm-hmm. And the the Buddha side, the Buddhism side of things at that time felt a little bit... <sighs> softer more accessible more fluid um more really spiritual to me I I think you know the Iyengar approach not that it doesn't not that it isn't a spiritual approach but perhaps where I studied as well it was just very it was very masculine it was very linear it was very structured um Mm -hmm. it felt you know, and at this time, at, at that time, I don't think I recognized it, but looking back, it felt a little more dogmatic. Um, but there definitely were parallels, and I felt the connection. And, and I think at that time, and really up until probably the last eight years of my study, um, I've been trying to resolve the disconnect between the two, um, you know, between Dualistic thinking and non-duality between, you know, and you started to allude to this and talk about this in your Monday night class this week, you know, speaking to Prusham Prakriti versus just, just the one, you know, Brahman, just the one non-dual essence. And so I, I've been trying to resolve that in my own mind, in my own practice, and in my own real experience of you know real life dharma applied dharma I think is what Thich Nhat Hanh calls it which I love um so yeah so it's a it's a good question and I think that there still is within me this desire to to merge the two and understand how they're really um not talking about different things and I think you mentioned it in in the Monday night
0: Sonder yeah, no, class, it,
1: there's a little progression there and, and maybe we can maybe we'll come to that a little bit more but does that yeah, answer your question
0: it, yeah and i think it does well this is something i I even remember um i think i met you in ohio and at one of yeah. the breaks this was a theme that came up in our chat around that like what yes and i and, I, and the, so just like you said you've been trying to figure out how to merge these two or find the unity between the two this mm-hmm. is something that's I would say has at times plagued me. (laughs) I felt kind of uh, cognitively cognitive have a lot of cognitive dissonance between what I felt I understood to be the aims of the yogic path and the aims of the Buddhist path. They seem to be divergent for a long time to me. Um, I would say happily I'm in a position or feel like I'm in a position now where they, they, they seem more resonant and, and um, overlapping slash unitive, but the basic idea is, you know, you've probably heard this, this, kind of the cliche that of the idea that there's one mountain there's many paths up to the summit of that mountain so however you get to the to the mountain it doesn't really matter the, the, the main thing is to apprehend the experience from the mountaintop and so there's the the one 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 path many routes or one one mountain many paths kind of view and then there are the partisan voices in these communities that say no 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 this is our system is the, the, the correct system. This is the, 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 dogmatic, this is the dogmatic voice that says, this is the way the other, those other ones are misguided. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> and, um, and, and I'm much more of a fan, you know, I, have swung both sides of this, this question. And I think I'm much more in, a, in the camp now of one mountain, many paths and, and how do these paths get articulated in a way that the individual finds Relevance connection and and accessibility to act upon in their own life in a way so Mm -hmm. I think it's I think it's a really um, Interesting theme that you brought up around around those uh, Convergences divergences and and something we can definitely get get into when we dig deeper Um, so 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 it does sound like you had like the, the Dharma was quite fused into your yoga life from a very early stage Um, but where does the firefighter career come in? How did,
1: right. Um, so, so let me add a little more to that. So there was the, the yoga and Dharma side of things. And as it is now, it was even more difficult than to make a living teaching yoga. Um, so I sent myself to massage school. That's where I became a body worker. So it went Mm -hmm. from yoga, Dharma practice into body work. And I simply just, I, I made more money at massage and i found that the time i was allotting to teaching yoga was conflicting with growing my massage therapy business so i i stopped teaching in Uh, 2004 i think it was i stopped teaching yoga um and as it happens sometimes um unfortunately or fortunately however your perspective is my practice fell away for a good while for about 10 years my practice was very limited um, both in meditation and movement practice um, while I built my massage business. And then about six years into massage, you know, I don't actually know why this got into my head, but it got into my head that massage therapy was somehow not a legitimate like profession. <laughs> so I decided I needed a real job. Um, and I knew I, I knew and it sounds kind of funny now, but um no, you it's, it's just—it's
0: it's just so interesting how you know the, these these um, these judgments get get mm-hmm. internalized that we that, that we absorb from from somewhere, because um, basically what you're describing is you you your passion was yoga and dharma and you wanted a day, you wanted a day gig to support your passion and then that then and necessitated that it became the full time thing you were doing the massage but there's that little voice which I resonate with because I had it with myself around acupuncture. Um, you know, I felt like there was, was somehow a cop-out. It wasn't a legitimate career. It wasn't a respectable career that I could go to re- a reunion and be proud of, um, mm-hmm. even though it was so meaningful. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. so I, I, t- I can, I can connect with that. So what, what, what happened when, with, with the massage that, that felt, what was it, what was feeling like, uh, I- insignificant or insufficient for you?
1: Um, I think at the time I was, I was, Approaching massage from a very just physical standpoint, you know, somebody's uh. got an achy shoulder. They come in, I work on their shoulder, they feel better. It was from a very superficial therapeutic standpoint, um, mm-hmm. and and I was getting a little burnout on that. And then, it, you know, having your own business, being a sole proprietor, um, it was tiring. You know, constantly having to keep up my own business, and the the thought of working for somebody else was tempting in that way. Um, and then also, I was like, "Gosh, am I going to be a massage therapist when I'm 60? Like, is that a real job?" <laughs> so, so I looked into other things, and I, you know, I knew I wanted to be in the helping field, right? I, I wanted to be of service in some way, and I love that you use that word, you know, something, something respectable at a reunion that you could talk about. I, I felt similarly, and um, that I wanted a profession that that was honorable. So I looked into nursing, quickly discovered that wasn't for me for a small moment i took one day flight school as a, a rotary wing pilot i thought i wanted to fly helicopters that didn't that didn't wow. go either um, but i had uh, i'd had a partner in my past who was a firefighter and we'd talked a lot about the job and it it met it met checked a lot of boxes it was physical which i'm a very physically active person you know it was working with people being of service very honorable you know it also in on the west coast firefighters make a really good living so there was that aspect too. Um, so I went for it. So yeah, so I put myself in uh, into paramedic school. I uh, did wildland firefighting for a season. And then I started working for municipal departments and went through fire academy um, and worked, worked full-time for an ambulance as a medic and then worked two different fire departments um, as a firefighter medic. So that's how I ended up in... And firefighting, and all the while I kept my on the side, I kept my massage business just some core clients for um, you know for pocket pocket change, that sort of thing.
0: Um, yeah uh, so I have that? to ask because yeah. you a, you're the first firefighter or former firefighter that I've ever had a podcast with, and really, you're the first firefighter that I've ever had a, a real conversation with, mm-hmm. but in imagining what that's like trying to imagine what that's like i i also reference my own sort of stayed career as an acupuncturist which is is not that dissimilar from being a massage therapist you you have clients come in they get on your table you you attend to them you give them the 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 therapeutic skills that you have trained to to develop um and you wish them well um but the, the the risks involved in that career are 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 minuscule compared to what i imagine the risks And kind of the emotional headspace of being a firefighter. And can you talk about that? I mean, what is the actual doing of it like? I mean, is it full on cortisol rush, intense fight or flight? This is it. And and, and my life is on the line the whole time. Does it feel that way? Or what is the actual encounter of that job like?
1: Yeah, it's a good question, and and I think a lot of people don't um, don't really have a perspective of of what that career and that career path looks like um, because we're we see it glamorized on TV, and so that's what everybody thinks it's like all the time. And so it's both and. There's there's the intensity, the cortisol, the you know emergency side of it where you're you're just on. You're going to you know you're going to be with people at their worst possible moments right maybe it's a vehicle accident maybe it's an actual fire maybe it's a heart attack maybe it's any of those sort of things so there's that side of it that's that's really intense that's really stressful that demands 150% of your your presence and attention and capacity to think quickly to act quickly to not be overwhelmed um and that's super stressful and intense and then there's the total opposite where you know you're at the station and nothing's happening and you're cooking dinner and um
0: playing pool it's it's a
1: and what and playing pool and no, there were no pool tables at my station unfortunately but (laughs) um, it's a lot of being able and this is what I think was so difficult on my nervous system and I developed a lot of um health issues during the last couple years of my career as a firefighter and it's part of why I left the service but um you're constantly in, in the mindset and the physical set of, like, you You may need to go at any moment. Like, when you're in the station, you could be sleeping in the Lazy Boy after lunch and the tones go off. That's when the bells in the station go off for a call, for an emergency call. Mm-hmm. And you've got to be, like, up and out the door and to that call at the scene of that call within, you know, let's say seven or eight minutes, depending on the response times in your town. So, so so that there's this there's this level of stress that you're always at the ready you're always having to like go from nothing to everything and that's really really hard to sustain um
0: i I honestly can't imagine i i the 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 few dynamics mostly with you know sort of semi-emergency situations with family members where i felt i was on call and had to be ready on call and at the slightest Text or a phone call—it might mean something really uh, difficult or painful or challenging was going on. Um, that that wound me up in a in a very challenging way. So I can't imagine what a uh, career that has this built into it would do or be like.
1: Yeah, it's it's tough, and I think at first for most people, and myself included, um, for most people that get into that profession. That's the exciting part at first, right is is the is the adrenaline rush is the excitement? you know, if you're an ambulance chaser at all, if you're the person that like you know slows your car down and cranes your neck to see what's happening, there's that like part of the human nature that that gets excited by, oh, I wonder what happened, and yeah. that only lasts so long. I mean, you see enough tragedy and trauma and death, and hopefully it shifts that perspective. Um, but some people are able to sustain that for a long time, the, the adrenaline and feeding off of that, I think, um, you know, and that could be a whole conversation on its own. But for me, that, that didn't, that didn't work with my system, all, all layers of my system, physical, mental, emotional, energetic, all of it.
0: So, and how long, and how long were you, were you working in that, as a, in that capacity before you had started to transition out?
1: Um, all, total, all said and done about eight years, um the last couple years were you know the length of time it took for the mental process of leaving that profession um to start recognizing that the that the health issues that I was starting to have were actually very much related to the stress of the job um and to actually finally make that decision because it is it's a really it's a really hard profession to get into it's a very difficult job to get especially on the west coast cuz they're pretty coveted positions so to so to have that that job to have that position and then to leave it is it just doesn't happen very often so it took a long time for me to really really pay attention to what my true calling in life was how i could be of service um and how to be of service to myself to actually be able to to get up the gumption to leave that job to say to my captain i'm resigning um, so it took about two years for me to really do that. And, you know, I got pretty sick. I call it sick. I had a lot of things happening that, um, I've self-diagnosed as, as stress induced, as stress related. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's so interesting
0: it. though. as you're saying it all, uh, you know, I think this is, there's something universally relevant here, which is that. You know, we're, we're all trying to find our way and we make decisions at one point in time with the best intentions and the best information we have. And we, we play along and collaborate with those decisions for a while. And then, you know, if all goes well, we, we find out several years in that we found that we're happy with the, the outcomes of those decisions. But oftentimes, you, know, you can find yourself in a situation whether it's a relationship or a job or something where the writing is on the wall. It's not working out the way you wanted it to. Um, in your case, you're getting health complications that are, are unavoidable or are hard to ignore. And, um, and at that point, I think what one of the things I've reflected on in my own life is that, and, and I think I've benefited from this bit of knowledge from uh, a book called Predictably Irrational that I read like 15 years ago or whenever it came out. The author talked about this, this psychological component of loss aversion where uh, the brain, based on forces in natural selection, wired us so that um, losses weigh like twice as much on the mind as comparable gains. So a real short, short and skinny of this is like if you, if you find $20 on the ground, it feels like $20 that you just picked up. But if you find out that you lo- have lost $20, um, it it, it, it's, it emotionally hits the brain or the heart like you've lost $40. So, this mm-hmm. is it, loss of the, the avoidance of loss because of its pain, inherent pain, gets people to stay in situations reliably against their better interests. So, to, to actually make the transition that you're describing requires a tremendous amount it's much, much harder to get out of something that is to get into something in another way of saying that mm. uh, because of the loss inversion. So I can totally simply empathize with the, the kind of, I imagine there were probably a kind of existential slash uh, professional conundrum about like how to do that, how to make that transition.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it, it was also with moving from massage to firefighting and then, from firefighting back to massage and back to yoga with a totally different perspective and a different lens. Um, yeah, loss aversion. I'm going to look into that. That that's interesting to me. Cause I definitely resonate with it. Um, but that, so, that go
0: ahead. No, yeah. Well, you know, the, it is interesting that you went full circle. So you started with yoga and, and, and massage and then, and then, and then came back to that. Um, mm-hmm. was there, was there something that, that you came, when you came back to the yoga career and and, and massage career and added, added in the Dharma teaching, was there something about that the second time that, that sit with or sat with you in a more integrated way or did did you feel more resolved around it when you came back to it or was there a different appreciation of it coming, coming back to it after 90 years? All of the
1: above, all of the above, I would say, I mean, the time that I spent as a firefighter, um, you know, it was an interesting lens through which to look at, at health, health care, we're calling it, right, mm-hmm. and well-being, and and to really see um, what does work and what doesn't. You know, I, I feel like as a medic and a firefighter, I got to see a lot of what doesn't work, what doesn't work in our medical system, to ca- to actually care for health, to actually manage well-being, to actually help people to to flourish not just to survive but to actually thrive Um, so I got to see a lot of what doesn't work Um, and I got to understand that that where I could be of service wasn't in that profession and that it was somewhere else and so I started to rethink the tools and the skills I already had in massage therapy in teaching yoga and started to consider them and look at them from a more therapeutic lens, from a, um, a lens of, okay, how can I actually use these tools to help people to thrive in their lives, to help people to flourish, to help people to um, improve their well-being, to help people shift their consciousness out of the level of consciousness that creates so much of the difficulty and trauma and tragedy that I was seeing in the fire service right at the fire service was a lot of um and more the medical side of it being you know being on the ambulance was a lot of (laughs) Mm band-aiding you know just and I literally putting band-aids but also just you know not helping patients with um finding a different way of living that can actually create less suffering in their life, physical, mental, emotional. Um,
0: the way you're describing it is actually is illuminating to me because I, I, I always have the sense of a firefighter doing more, well, as the name implies, putting out literal fires, but you're, you keep mm-hmm. describing kind of the, 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 the interpersonal dimension of that work, which, you know, I, I didn't realize you would be on the, in the ambulance doing, it sounds like more like para, paramedic type, scope of work. um.
1: Right. Well, well, most, most departments in California, again, I'm in, I'm based in California. So a lot of the departments in um, California are, are firefighter medic departments. So they have engines, they have fire engines that go to fires. And then they also have the ambulances that go to medical calls, usually both. Um, And I worked in relatively rural areas for all the departments I worked for. And uh, I would say probably 15% of our calls were legitimate fire and the Mm -hmm. rest were medical. So I work in a town where it's a huge recreational area. So a lot of, a lot of ski accidents and mountain bike accidents, a lot of vehicle accidents. And then the other area I worked, we had a lot of, um, a lot of homeless population, a lot of um, like the greenest, greenest city in California. So a lot of uh, drug stuff, a lot of legitimate health issues, a lot of senior facilities, so there was oh, okay. a lot of, you know, working with medical patients um, in the ambulance. So there was a lot of interpersonal, and and that's where I felt. That's where I just saw people kind of getting filtered through the medical system in a way that wasn't really teaching them, educating them, serving them in any way to get out of maybe the conditions of what was happening with their lives. Um, it was just band-aiding. That's what I mean by band-aiding.
0: Yeah, no, I'm sure someone's coined the phrase, but something like the conventional medicine industrial complex. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it, there it, it's, you go. It, it's business and it does, it treats symptoms. It it, it doesn't necessarily look for holistic root right. solutions to things. Um, and I
1: don't want to, I don't want to be negative about it. If I break my leg, I want, you know, a paramedic with some good morphine and a great orthopedic surgeon. Like, don't get me wrong. It's, it It has its place and it also is missing a lot. And that's where, coming back to massage and yoga, I felt I was going to be much more of service um, to others working from that lens and to myself, right? Because that, yep. that profession was making me sick. Um, so that's how I ended up back and back to Dharma, Yoga Dharma, Buddha Dharma. <laughs>
0: so it, it sounds like, and this is one of the themes we had, we had earmarked as a topic to explore, but it sounds like mm-hmm. the the career transition was a... I may say it, it sounds like it was an activity of self-compassion absolutely and that yeah. you yeah we're, 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 we're finding a way to take care of yourself um in that navigate in, in that transition um absolutely. but but it, so it was after the firefight, what point did you do the training the teacher training with Jack Cornfield?
1: um well a couple of reasons one I I wanted to study more formally because most of my study had been self-taught so far in Buddha Dharma. And, you know, Jack was my primary teacher and he's, he's starting to get up there in age. (laughs) Um, So I realized if if I was going to study with him now was the time. Um, And, you know, both Jack and Tara are well sought after teachers. So the opportunity to practice and teach or study with them in person is, is, pretty far gone at this point so this program was a great opportunity um, to study with both of them and and then a lot of other teachers that they brought on
0: yeah no i've heard a lot about that program. it sounds great and and just for the casual listener if they're not familiar with jack Hornfield, jack was part of the 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 first generation of of american seekers that went to asia particularly india and thailand and, and other parts of southeast asia and practiced the dharma and then brought it back in the late 60s early 70s and and jack was part of a, a group with joseph goldstein and sharon salzberg and others that started the insight meditation society in, in barry massachusetts where i've tra- practiced a lot um, and then i don't know exactly when but jack kind of i think there was a bit of a a parting of of directorial vision between jack and joseph some tony schwartz i don't know if you know this but tony schwartz the guy who wrote trump's uh he ghost writ wrote trump's book the art of the deal tony Mm -hmm. schwartz is also like deeply involved in in american sort of spirituality and and wrote a book about it and one of his chapters which i have not read (laughs) i'm just flagging it (laughs) one of the chapters in that book explains how they they kind of had a difference of a uh, directorial vision i think about Where to take exactly. a dharma center in the 21st century, but he went out to california and and then he he formed the very this sort of the other flagship uh, Meditation center slash retreat center in the in north america called spirit rock um And I and he was he was close friends with uh, one of my teachers and therapists jack angler Which is why I, I flipped the names when my first introduced him but um So, you know what? i know one of the things you're aware of this but the, the buddha has this sermon that called the fire sermon where he sort of diagnoses the the, the woes or, or problems of the world based on the fact that everybody's senses are on fire and he, and he sort of says that our senses are in fire with craving and and so fire itself is very much a, a central metaphor in the dharma path and and even nirvana or nirvana is often described as a flame gone out. You know, when the when the fuel that sustains the fire is removed or consumed, the, the flame goes out. And there's a cool state that emerges, and that's the cool state of peace or or uh, nibbana. Some some would say. Um, did you find that, that 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 there was any of that kind of uh, direct metaphor in your as you came to the Dharma that that, that resonated with you, or was that just something that like you, you happen to see in a text and, and kind of thought, oh that's interesting but wasn't really you know, central to the, the, way, the way your orientation to the dharma i mean i may, may mean, be forcing you, you may maybe forcing you into a category here that you don't want to go which is totally fine but like the, the relationship between the the, the, the the pivotal relationship that fire has in the dharma teaching has been of interest to me and, and the fact that you know, I see because I see the Dharma teaching as putting out the flames of of these of craving or, or clinging mm-hmm. or misunderstanding yeah. in the world, putting those flames out. So there's a, I see a direct relationship here between, so the, the the actual firefighting and then the more spiritual kind of firefighting that the Dharma practitioners get up to.
1: I I think I love the analogy. I think with the um, with my return to the Dharma after firefighting, I see that much more now. I don't think I made that connection. And and I don't even think I was familiar with the fire sermon, you know, prior to the fire service. So I wouldn't have made that um that linear um connection. But I do now, especially I would say in the last probably the last four or five years of my own practice, really personally from my own practice, not just seeing it in the world, but, you know, having the experience of it in my own, my own world, my own personal internal world. Um, and part of that that dampening the flame for me really has been this you know back to that self compassion concept has been this self compassion work um, you know I think so let's, let's, a,
0: let's get into that because I, I and I, yeah. I, I definitely want to get open this up because as uh, as I have mentioned elsewhere at workshops and classes um, the hard practices of Buddhism are often taught in a way that i would describe them as like a formal practice so you might practice loving kindness meditation and in that you repeat certain phrases to yourself or or and you send the the intention of those phrases to other categories of recipients so i might i might send loving kindness to you laurie i might send loving kindness to my mother i might love send loving kindness to my neighbor to the the person at the post office i might send it to the cashier at the at the, at the grocery store and as a way of sort of uh, sort of aligning the heart around a universal quality of love towards all 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 beings um and i i know compassion is, is a form of that compassion practice is a form of that and i Uh, humbly state that I feel like I've often been a failure at those kinds of practices in that they tend to engender the very opposite of what seems to be encouraged. (laughs) So I get more self-judgment, more angry at myself for being unable to feel and kindle these qualities of the heart. So in my own path, and and I won't get into it necessarily here so much, but in my own path, I've found a more indirect way into the heart qualities, Um, try to bring those, try to gently bring them into other forms of teaching but so whenever i hear someone talk about self-compassion i like the idea and i find it very hard to access um in a way that doesn't feel inauthentic to me so i'd love for you to kind of uh if you're comfortable like consider me a a a a, a, a struggling student and and how how do you how do you conceptualize self compassion and how do you maybe offer someone tangible tools for for cultivating it or accessing it or engaging with it?
1: Mm, that's a great question. Um, okay. We'll play along here. Let's see. So first of all, I resonate with you that that some of the more traditional ways of practicing metta, loving kindness, and karuna, self compassion, or compassion in general. Can feel really um, compartmentalized and boxed, and and inaccessible and, and inauthentic, um, and I felt that way for a long time. And I think for me, self compassion or compassion in general, over this last year. So just to give a little, you know, a little backstory, I've kind of dedicated this year, 2021, through some realizations of my own of how little self compassion I have to cultivating self-compassion, to really um, tapping into this because I think it's, it's you know, I wouldn't go so far. Well, I would go so far as to call it a superpower that, that if we can access, really can reduce a lot of our suffering. Um, and so in trying for myself to understand compassion a little bit better as an embodied experience rather than a theoretical cognitive experience... Um, I leaned back into, you know, the program I was just in and the teachers that I've primarily studied with Jack and Tara, and they speak about compassion being the natural arising when Metta or loving kindness meets suffering, that that's Mm. naturally what arises. And so I really, you know, I really had understood that cognitively. I'm like, yeah, totally makes sense, right? Suffering and I'm nice. And then I want to help somebody that makes sense but I hadn't really felt it or experienced it in my, in my own self or my, with my own suffering. So so I've been sitting with that a lot and. Because it would make,
0: of, yeah, I mean, just even that much uh, to, to use that, that, that frame that when you, when, uh, when someone, a practitioner, you or me meets suffering with kindness, a so loving kindness that you're saying com- that the, the Compassion is sort of the the emergent response mm-hmm. within the heart. Is that right?
1: Yeah, it's like the alchemical process of of the combining of those two qualities of suffering and and loving kindness or metta. And but then I want to you know reverse engineer that even more with the metta. My understanding of it, you know, again from from what I've studied is is that metta is. Let's see if I can phrase this simply. When we can connect to the innate goodness, this is this is what my teachers would say, when we can connect to the innate goodness, that authentic, innocent, unadulterated, untainted quality that all of us have, that goodness, then meta arises. So, so there's a first step, right, of being able to connect to, whether it's in my own self or whether it would be you trying to connect to it within yourself or me trying to connect to it with you, to be able to connect to that innate goodness, when I can sense that, then the natural rising of the heart is metta, is loving-kindness, is, is this wish for like, ah, oh, I wish for your safety and your health and your happiness and your ability to be at peace with yourself. And I wish that for myself. And so then when I have that quality of metta, of loving kindness, that that genuine authentic wish for the well-being of myself or another, then when that meets the suffering of myself or another, then compassion arises, the wish to actually relieve that suffering in some way.
0: Right. And so for me... Go ahead. Go on. No, 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 I don't want to interrupt. Go
1: ahead. I was was just going to say for me and my process, like as I've dedicated myself to this this year... What I realized why I couldn't access self-compassion, I could access it for other people. I can connect to the goodness in others and I can have that sense of loving kindness and metta for others and then compassion does arise. But within myself where the struggle I was finding the struggle was is that I couldn't actually connect to my own goodness. I couldn't connect to that innate... um, you know I'm using a lot of words that might may or may not work for some people in hearing these, but I couldn't connect to that innate, innocent, unadulterated, unconditioned um, essence of my being as an adult woman. And so what I found is that as as a verse as I've been to this in my life working with inner child stuff, is I I thought maybe I need to look at when I was just a small, innocent little girl, and maybe I can connect to that. Um, and so it was an yeah, interesting was, process. I pulled out some pictures of, of myself when I was younger, all the way down to, I have a picture of myself when I was three years old and little, you know, blonde pigtails, just a cute little kid. And I started working with that being, and I started to be able to sense the goodness of that being. And that, that allowed me to access meta for myself, for that little child, that then that natural arising of loving kindness arose in my heart for that being. And then that was, I was able to, I guess, transcribe over to, that's the wrong word, but um, into my adult self. And that was the that was kind of the missing link for me to be like, oh, now when I can sense my own suffering and I can sense the, the kindness I have for the, for the innocent goodness of my being, then self-compassion starts to arise does that make sense that trajectory
0: yes no no No. no. yeah it, it totally makes sense in theory and <laughs> and maybe yeah. if i can just do some do some reflective listening to just recap mm-hmm. a little bit so on one level uh, we're we're talking about loving sort of a distinction between loving kindness and compassion mm-hmm. um and you're defining loving kindness as a kind of a recognition, I think, of the innate goodness in either yourself or somebody else. Is that right? Did I get that right so far?
1: Like- yes. Like that's what I think the lens goes both ways. When we can see and recognize that innate goodness in somebody, then loving kindness naturally arises. And I think we can cultivate loving kindness from a more, you know, maybe traditional standpoint, like the phrases, to start to help us recognize and see the goodness in ourselves yeah. or others that we might right, right, right. Does that make sense both ways?
0: Yeah. 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 And I, and I think, um, I, I'm just sort of thinking this through in my head, but there's like some, some obstacles that I can see either seeing the innate goodness in somebody else. And then the the, the obstacles and seeing the innate goodness in, in myself, um, mm-hmm. particularly let's say, At the level of a category of person or group that maybe isn't doing something you'd like to see them doing in the world, Mm -hmm. um, it can often trigger, and this is something I've been talking about with Bob Wright about, um, it can often trigger uh, some of the cognitive biases that we have, like attribution error. We We can attribute a kind of dispositional trait or behavior to the group or individual which obstructs seeing any kind of inherent goodness. Like we can say like, Oh, the people that voted that way, they're just categorically evil. Totally. And, and, and I think something goes on similarly with ourselves that we, um, if we, if we root around in our psyche, looking for reasons to, to, to intimate into that innate goodness, uh, we can often get a lot of evidence that stands in the way or, or it seems counterfactual to the idea of innate goodness. And, mm-hmm. and then for that, I actually think it comes back to what I was mentioning earlier, hinting at with the loss of version where there, there neuroscientists speak about the, the, the negativity bias of the brain, um, which again evolved in one evolutionary environment and conferred evolutionary advent, you know, ad, advantage in that early environment, but now, um, all that negativity, focusing on the negativity actually just sort of over amps us into states of anxiety and depression and unworthiness, um, which aren't very helpful. So, so that, so yeah, loving, loving kindness is either the, is is on one level is the innate goodness in others. And it's also, I think from, from it's this sense of an aspiration to, to wish that person well, and then the, the, mm-hmm. the subtle but I think important distinction is that compassion itself touches into that goodness and wishes the other to wishes the other or the self to be free of suffering. So it's like a, it's a it's a it's that, and that's what I liked about how you said it. It's like this, this, the compassion arises in re, a kind response to the suffering.
1: Yes, it's in response. It's, it's really action oriented. Yeah. Um, it wishes to relieve the suffering it wishes to do what it can and i and i want to draw a uh, you know i want to clarify here that it isn't to eradicate or annihilate the suffering right it's not my job to take away somebody's suffering or to take away my own suffering but it's to to lessen that suffering so um
0: yeah, so it's not just
1: another form of aversion is what I'm trying to say. It's not just another form of trying to change conditions or make things other than they are. Um, it's a way of offering, whether it's to yourself or to somebody else, what's needed in the moment to be with that suffering in a way that doesn't create more suffering,
0: essentially. Right, right. Yeah, you know, that's a really subtle and important point, too, and that the compassion might develop an insight into what's the the, the compassionate approach and and energy may be a, able to help understand not in so much in an analytic way but in a, in a direct insightful way what is perpetuating a suffering and therefore it can be released like when you really when you really grok it in your in your gut why this thing keeps perpetuating you can or if someone else is doing something that you know it can be dropped but there's many situations um, where the conditions aren't amenable to influence. Like we can't adjust or technique our way out of them. And then at mm-hmm. that point, the, the compassion is becomes a, a, a container by which we, as you're saying, we can hold it or be with it without adding extra unnecessary resistance or suffering on top of it. Yes. And, it and and so the 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 kind of the pedagogical piece that you, you, the creative way you came to it of like going back and finding photographs of yourself as a child is interesting because uh, I heard not, more than one teacher say, you know, it's often hardest to send love and compassion to oneself. It's as you articulate yourself, it's much easier to, to extend these qualities to someone else. But when mm-hmm. we bring them closer to home, there's that we can be, be met with all sorts of resistance. And for that reason, sometimes teachers have even said, leave yourself off until, you know, you've been practicing for months or even a year. And like, You know, you're you're, you're the self that, that you're trying to bring this compassion to is the wet log on the fire. So make sure your fire is really roaring back to the fire metaphor. Right. Get a roaring fire kindled in your heart with sending these qualities to other people first or other other recipients. And then when you feel like it's really um, going. uh there's usually a few different workarounds on how to get access the qualities towards oneself. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and you went with the, the one, I'm not, I haven't really heard someone explicitly recommend this before, but I'm intrigued by it. So you found photographs of a former version of yourself. (laughs) I can Mm -hmm. say that (laughs) little me, little you, the, the, the mini Laurie, and you were able to somehow that was able to evoke a, a connection with the your with your former innate goodness or your innate sense of innate goodness
1: mm-hmm. yeah it was or that you were was, deserving of it looked, or something well I think it was just really for me like seeing the visual of me as a small child I think I was about three years old in the picture seeing you know in every three-year-old well I shouldn't say every three-year-old but <laughs> good pictures of three-year-olds they look happy and sweet and innocent and and I was just really able to see like you know there was a period in my life where I wasn't this adult version of me who's striving to accomplish to be to do to to achieve um that hasn't you know maybe done wrong yet obviously three-year-olds have but haven't you know committed any big wrongs, which of course, as a 47 year old adult, I have done things that I regret in my life. So seeing that innocent child helped me just reconnect to, to that innate goodness, which really is just, you know, spirit to me. It's just the, the, the unadulterated spirit, the non-dual spirit that we're all like interconnected and and one with. Um, It was, it helped me connect to that and then be able to feel that within myself as a 47-year-old adult woman who has much more history and much more conditioning and you know, has come to a place in her life where for a very long time, and it's part of the fire service, actually, that I was striving to, to accomplish something, to do something, to be something, to get somewhere, like I think so many of us are, and this is part of why I think self-compassion is really inaccessible for a lot of people is because we hold ourselves to this and it's in our culture right we hold ourselves to this standard that we need to be always doing more getting more being more working harder etc and yeah and if i can just
0: add on like, a, like maybe yeah. it could be an idiosyncratic bug in my psyche but um there's also a component of it feeling self-indulgent yes. to and um, it's not that I don't feel unworthy. It's just that it 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 it's like uh, <laughs> it just, it's, it's sort of
1: it's,
0: it. It feels like a very like it,
1: common belief that it's self indulgent. That somehow that is selfish, self indulgent. Um, you know when when and I've done some workshops with people around compassion. When I ask people what gets in the way of, you know, self-compassion, that's one of the top answers, right? Oh, that feels self-indulgent. It's okay for other people. Like I can give other people compassion, but if I do that for me, I'm indulging myself or that, Oh, if I'm self-compassionate, I'm not going to learn anything. I'm going to repeat the same patterns. Um, And that's a really big one that, that somehow we believe that. And this is again in our culture. And I grew up in a very like, a pretty violent household where corporal punishment was the way of, you know, the way of our household. And there's this idea that punishment is how we how we change behavior, right? Punishment is how we get ourselves to improve or evolve or be better. And that's, that's one of the big things that comes up as a block for self-compassion is that we think we have to somehow flagellate ourselves, punish ourselves, berate ourselves, um, rather than actually care for ourselves and tend to Ourselves in a way that actually helps us to grow and learn and evolve. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so no, I think, think that's
0: that I, I think I think that's a really important piece, like that could be. Um, I don't know what the phrase is like, motivational or like a, it's like a, a, a rationalization. But it, it, it is true that if you, I think it's true that if you really want to grow and evolve and expand your experience and understanding of experience uh it's 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 not optional that you, you you can't you can't get there through a heart that's closed to anything and if your heart is closed to yourself you're not going to get there any faster than if your heart is closed to somebody else like the heart has to be open Like as i interviewed tammy simon a few years ago from sounds true and she said if your spiritual practice isn't opening your heart up it's not doing a damn thing
1: yeah exactly i love tammy <laughs> simon there's yeah. a quote, and I don't know who said it, but um, says you can't ha- hate yourself into a version of yourself that you love.
0: Right, right.
1: It just doesn't work, and and you know I think our culture has a belief that it does, right? I mean, you look at our you know our prison industrial system, and that that punishment somehow is supposed to help people and make them better. It, it we've proven that doesn't actually work. Yeah. Um, and this is where it's fascinating to me as I've been studying you know, self-compassion and all. I want to give credit to, you know, who I've been studying primarily, which is Kristen Neff and and Chris Germer and Dan Siegel, and of course, Tar Brock. Um, but Kristen Neff and Chris Germer specifically um, have done the bulk of all the world's research on self-compassion. And there's tons and tons of studies now, and, and they've shown what you know, what does work and does what doesn't work as far as motivating people to change and evolve and grow. And, you know, just to compile it all into one self-compassion works, punishment doesn't. <laughs> that's uh-huh. the gist of it. And so for me, that's um, been really fascinating. I'm, I'm a very linear, as you can imagine, coming from the fire service, the very, you know, linear thinking person. I like to see the, you know, show me the money. I want to see the data. And there's so many studies um now that are accessible if you go to kristen neff's website she has all of them there to to look at um, for free that are really that really support compassion and self-compassion as a key component um, to really helping us grow and evolve and and shift our consciousness in in a positive and skillful way
0: all right. So after this call, I'm going to call up my mother and have her mail my childhood photo books to me. Awesome. <laughs> so let's, 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 concretize this. So I'm going to get, get, and I, I remember a photo that was taken of me. I must've been about two years old. And it was one of those where I was wearing a big cowboy hat. And my thought my parents thought it was hilarious because I was, I was on the toilet and I had fallen into the seat. <laughs>
1: that is hilarious
0: (laughs) this is the photo that became my you know my high school yearbook shot that my parents put into the yearbook um but uh it was anyway i'll get the photos i'll I'll find Mm -hmm. one that that evokes a a former version of myself that i can i can connect with Uh, how do you what i'm getting to is what do i don't hate to use the word mechanics but what does the actual practice look like how would how would you walk me through some of the, the salient or main main features of how you encourage self-compassion in, in actual practice.
1: Um, so I'll, I'll give you two first. If, if you want to start with connecting to metas, connecting to loving kindness, um, you don't necessarily need to have a photograph of yourself as a child, but you might imagine yourself at a time in your life when things felt simpler, more innocent, um, you're probably younger at this point because you don't have as much history. And just see if you can imagine a sense of yourself at a time when you were younger, where where there was a sense of lightness and laughter, maybe silliness, when you were when you were more at play in your life, that usually connects you to that sense of of goodness and innocence. And just okay. see if you can imagine that and get a feel for that. and And for me, what happens is that does naturally, elicit a sense of um well wishing for that being for that part of me right like you would wish a child well like you would want a child to be well and so that that can be one place just to start there is just to be able to tap into that sense of goodness of kindness for that being that part of you that is still you and then secondarily in working specifically with self-compassion i'm 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 going to borrow directly from Kristen Neff because this is the practice I've been doing all year and it's been really profound for me. And it's a three-step process and I've kind of modified it for myself. But the first step is when you're in a moment of suffering, when you're in a moment of difficulty, whatever that is um, within yourself, is to stop and, and be mindful of it, to notice that, okay, this is a moment of suffering. This is difficult. This is hard. I'm struggling here. And just acknowledge that, right? It's the recognizing. And then the second part of that um, would be to connect to the human side of it, the humanity of it, right? To recognize that, okay, other people feel like this. I'm not alone in this, that this isn't the first time it's happened, that there's other people that feel this way. And this isn't in a way to dismiss it like, oh, no big deal. Other people feel this way. I shouldn't feel bad. It's more to understand that you're not alone in it, that this is a common shared experience whether it's fear or sadness or grief or whatever it is and let yourself be held a little bit by that connection to the common humanity of what you're feeling that it's not wrong that it's normal and that it's yeah, not I, your
0: fault i want to underline two things you just said because <laughs> i think they're really common and, and, and are worth hearing a couple of times one is that uh first off when you experience suffering it a it's hard to recognize that that's what it is it sounds easier than it is it, it's like it's when you're when you're really caught by something it can be hard to rec- stand outside of it and recognize oh this is this is this is the dukkha train this is this is the dukkha bus that i'm on yeah. and and often when it, 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 two things occur usually when i've experienced dukkha and i have talked to other students about experiencing suffering of some sort there's a way that everyone internalizes that it as a personal problem. It's a personal mm-hmm. mistake in me or the person that, that is giving rise to this. So the, there's, there's, a, there's a deeply held tendency to see these, these issues as a personal misgiving or a personal shortcoming. And what you're getting at with the second side is that it, it actually is, is not personal. It's the impersonal, universal human condition to experience these things. And, and yeah. the key part that, you, that I want to underline, how you just said, because I liked it a lot, was that to do that does not diminish or minimize the significance of the suffering. Correct. Like you, you, you don't want to adopt a kind of a, a conceptual or a cognitive stance that says, oh, the, what life is suffering? Therefore, my suffering is insignificant. Get over it. Let's move back to my breath.
1: Right. Absolutely not. And that's easy to do in that step. It can feel like that, like you're minimizing it, like, oh, it's it shouldn't be a big deal, right? Like everybody suffers, no big deal. And that's that's not it. It's just to really, it's really to elicit that connection, to tap into um, the connection of all of humanity feels like this. I, I imagine it, and this is where I get visual. I imagine it in my head as I think like, you know everybody has this experience. Maybe the details are different, but everybody suffers. They have fear, they have doubt, they have worry, they have shame, they have anger. And I can imagine, you know in my visual head, the whole like world's arms wrapping around me to help hold my suffering. So for mm-hmm. me, it's a really deeply connective um, with the human experience, as you just said. So the first step is mindfulness, which can be like you said, hard to recognize. and I like to think of it like as a um When we're really caught like you're a mountaineer that's just slid off the mountain and you've got your ice axe and this mindfulness portion is like you're swinging your ice axe until it makes purchase right and when that Mm. ice axe makes purchase in the ice it arrests your slide right that's the moment of mindfulness it's like oh man I am caught and I am suffering here this is hard and so you swing that ice axe until you can you can arrest your your spin out right like we often do when we're suffering and recognize like, whoa, I'm caught. I'm super caught here and this is painful and this is hard. And then the second part is, and this is normal. This is Mm -hmm. part of the human experience. It's not my fault. Maybe I contribute. It's not saying that the conditions aren't such that you can do something about it. It's just saying that it's part of the human condition, right? So you you get the arms of the world's humanity wrapped around you to help hold this, to support you. You're not alone. And then the third part is, is the compassion part, is the kindness part. What do I need in this moment? Do I just need to recognize and allow? Do I need to offer myself kind words? Do I need to step away from the situation and take a walk? Do I need to make myself a cup of tea? Or do I need to speak up? Do I need a little bit more? And you'll appreciate this, Josh, because this is where Kristen Neff is is getting into the yin and yang of compassion. There's, there's, um, you can think of it like mama bear, like the loving mama bear versus the fierce mama bear, right? There's sometimes we just need something tender and loving and nurturing. And sometimes we need to step up and step in and take a stand. And that's the compassionate action. That's the young part of it. Um, so it's those three steps that I, that she's beautifully laid out. And, um, you know, I might get into this more when I come uh, in August to chat, but both Kristen Neff, Dan Siegel and Tara Brock's different ways of working with with Dukka, are really all the same. They have different acronyms and different steps, but they're really, they're really quite the same. It's recognizing suffering. It's understanding the universal nature of it and the, and the connection of, to humanity and then asking for what's needed in the moment and listening to that, not what we conditionally think we need you know, from our culture and from our conditioning, but what's actually needed in the moment to help us be with this suffering.
0: Yeah, I love it. That's great. Um I I would I could probably speak to you for Laurie for another hour and a half on this topic. And 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 we will will definitely have you as a as a guest teacher in the Sangha, we will have you back on the podcast to continue to explore this. But I am mindful of your time. Um I know you said so you had a hard stop at the half past, so we're we're coming up against that. But I do love that um those, that formulation, uh, the let me see if I can get it get it back. Uh, the, to recognize that it's occurring that when, there's, when there's suffering, to understand that it's it's not personal, that there's a universal uh, aspect of it as part of the human condition. And then, what's the third piece again? See, this is where I'm That's not so the good. the
1: kindness. That's the compassion portion. So okay. I'll, I'll simplify it for you. And again, I'm borrowing this directly from Kristen Neff. So um, she the three steps are mindfulness, common humanity, and kindness. So the mindfulness is recognizing that suffering is happening. The common humanity is, you know, you're not alone. It's not your fault. This is the normal human experience, the universality of it. And then Mm -hmm. the um, kindness part is what does it need? The compassion part. What can I offer myself in this moment? Perfect.
0: That sounds great. Well, I'm really looking forward to having your first guest appearance in the Sangha in a few weeks. And um, uh, I'm sure there'll be a lot of interest in this topic when we all do convene. So yeah, I'm um, forward to it as well. Yeah. Uh so for now I think we should say um we'll pause and we'll have you back soon. But thank you so much for your time today and, and thanks for sharing your your experience of your your life and 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 how you explore the dharma in 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 daily life and and sharing the dharma with others.
1: Absolutely it's my pleasure and I appreciate your time Josh.
0: Yeah. Well thanks so much Laurie we'll we'll talk to you soon.
1: All right thanks Josh.
0: Okay, hey, I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. It's, it's really nice to have these, these informal conversations that I've been doing for a long time personally with friends and colleagues and fellow practitioners about the Dharma and really getting a chance to talk shop with them. Um, as I say to the Sangha, I find that it's, it's these, these conversations born of friendship where I've been finding I'm getting the greatest nourishment and inspiration for my own practice. And I'm just trying to share that with you as in the, in the audience here, trying to share that that, that uh, v- energy or vibe, um, and I'm hoping that it will inspire and support your own practice wherever you are. So uh, again, if you'd like to join in for Laurie's session in this, with the Sangha, where she'll be giving a Dharma talk on self-compassion and then guiding us into a meditation and discussion around the, the theme of self-compassion, please consider joining the Sangha or doing a coming in for a drop-in for Lori's evening. And information on that is all available in the show notes under either drop in classes or sangha registration. So whether I see you at another Sangha event, a class soon, or somewhere online, or whether it's back here on the podcast the next episode. I just want to thank you for your attendance. Thank you for your participation in terms of listening. And as I say in my classes, thank you for your practice. It really is our collective commitment to practice that I feel is one of the few things that gives me optimism about our impending future. That I feel like the, the the need for a transformation of consciousness, the kind of transformation that practice facilitates, is very much needed in the world right now. And so I just thank you for your ongoing commitment to your practice. So until next time, stay safe, stay strong, keep practicing, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode.